Hello and welcome to the Holistic Healing Project with me, Dr. Lauren MacDonald. Each week I will be sitting down with a range of experts, thought leaders and other inspiring humans to explore how we can all bring more healing into our lives. I believe we all have the capacity to self-heal, to experience more joy, greater meaning and deeper connection. I really hope these conversations inspire and support you on your own journey back to wholeness. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing out there? I really hope that you are managing to navigate this surreal time okay and I hope that the podcast episodes are helping to support you. So this week I'm chatting to my friend Dr. Rupi Ajula from The Doctor's Kitchen. Rupi works in general practice and emergency medicine and he is very much on the front line through this pandemic. He is also the founder of The Doctor's Kitchen, which is really his central hub for all of his work bringing nutritional medicine and lifestyle medicine to the general public. In this episode, we cover a range of topics, everything from self-care during lockdown to lifestyle medicine to the importance of gratitude to Rupi's own healing journey and the importance of staying authentic and true to yourself. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and as always, if you do, please take a moment just to rate and review so I can continue sharing the episodes with more people across the globe. Take care, look after yourselves and I will see you very soon. Hi Ruby, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks Lauren, it's my pleasure. How are you, given everything that's going on right now? How are you? How are things? I'm good. I'm actually like keeping spirits up. I don't think I've had coronavirus yet, like a lot of my colleagues. I've actually got a lot of downtime now because a lot of events and speaking stuff has been pulled. So it's weird. I'm I'm spending a lot of time doing some self-care stuff. So I'm exercising every single day. I'm going for a mindful walk because it's now been given to us and packaged in a way that makes it a lot more precious, which I think is a good thing. I'm posting loads of like positive stories on my social media accounts that are resonating with a lot of people right now. And I'm learning a lot, actually. I'm learning a bit about myself, what makes me irritable, where my shortcomings are, as well as what the positive attributes are. That was a long response to your question. But yeah, in general, like I'm doing a lot of soul searching and self-reflection um how about you how's we're probably aren't much like nicer places than being cooped up in byron right i know i mean i think i did a pretty good job of (laughs) finding my way here and then getting (laughs) stuck in lockdown and do you know what things here it's it's really interesting being so far away from the uk and obviously all friends and family are back in the uk and you know nhs work everything so it feels strange because here we definitely haven't had anything like you in the UK. Definitely the curves are really flattening here in Australia and out of the big cities, you know, Byron, places like this. Of course, shops are shut and all the facilities are shut, but we're still allowed out to go for our walks. And fortunately, there's an incredible beach at the end of my road. So actually, it's pretty amazing. I don't want to glorify being in lockdown because I know that for so many people, this is not the case. People who are stuck in, you know, flats, crowded buildings and not haven't got access to nature. So I feel a little bit guilty almost saying that actually it's quite nice. But, you know, I've definitely done my time. You know, I'm sure you remember I broke my leg last year and spent three months just on the sofa in Sydney. So I 
definitely know how what it feels like to be stuck inside and it's really tough really really tough yeah you've had a tough time over the last year or so before that so i think if you're finding this an opportunity to sort of slow down and be gracious for it you know you're dare i say enjoying it then all power to you i mean that's <laughs> that's awesome I, I think you know without again being disrespectful to people who are really really going through a hard time um people that we see in general practice as well some some messages from from patients are pretty horrific and they're in dire states but there are some positive sparks to hold on to as well the sense of morale in hospitals the new sense of appreciation for key workers not just those on the front line but the garbage collectors the people who work in checkouts and in supermarkets the logistics people the amazon delivery guys and the police and teachers these are things that i don't think were on the front of people's minds and people's conscious awareness about just how important these people are so hopefully whenever this is over whether it's 3 months 6 months or perhaps even longer or whether this happens again you know we will maintain that sort of appreciation for these people because I don't think we've conjured that appreciation enough in the past. And it's sort of like the reason why I've been practicing gratitude for so long is because otherwise you forget about the incredible positives that we have on a daily basis, whether it be the ability to walk or the ability to go outside whenever you please or to meet a friend for a coffee. You know, otherwise you're just wrapped up in your self-absorbed negativity, whether it be because you're in meetings or because you're busy or because you're you know, being dragged to work, etc. Hopefully, we, we conjure this newfound appreciation. Because you, you were doing your gratitude, you were doing your the kind of three things you're grateful for for a long time, weren't you? It was well over a year in the end. Yeah, yeah. It was like, uh, I think I did a streak of 700 days in a row. But I've been doing gratitude for like a few years prior to that. And I thought, like, I'll do it for 15 days. I think I was at a wedding at the time, one of my good friend's weddings in India. And I just thought, okay, well, somehow practice gratitude. And it's easy to do it when you're on holiday because everything's like amazing. But then that went to 30 days and people were like, keep it up, right, two months. And then it just kind of carried on. And what I noticed is loads more people were getting involved in gratitude. And it put a positive spin on the end of my day, regardless of whether it was a busy day, whether I'd been angry at myself or got into a heated discussion with someone, you know, whatever it was, it would always put me into into a positive state before I go to sleep, which I think is very important. And now it's kind of like gratitude has been, is an important tool because it prepares you for situations like this, where the locus of control is completely outside your ability to change it. And you need to really focus on what things actually serve you rather than those that make you feel low or completely change your state of mind so for situations not as extreme as this but like this where gratitude actually pays dividends yeah and it helps you move out of that fear state as well doesn't it i mean you've got fear on one side and love on the other and anything you can do to shift more into the loving kind of gratitude state is definitely the way forward so we arranged to have this conversation before coronavirus took over and obviously, I did want to touch on it because it's huge and you're obviously working in A&E, seeing COVID patients day in, day out. But really, why I wanted to speak to you was obviously your passion with nutrition and the way you have brought food as medicine into the medical school curriculum 
and you've really become an educator through your books and through your social media. You do your own podcast. First of all, congratulations because it's just wonderful. But how did that all come about? Like, because it's just a huge journey you've been on in the last kind of five years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Um, thanks, Lauren, first of all. I mean, I, I always get really self-conscious when people congratulate me on it because in my mind, it's still like my pokey little uh, contribution to the nutrition and food as medicine world. And it started out as a passion project, which I started whilst I was in Australia five years ago, six years ago now. But uh, in my head, it's something that I started in like 2011 after I got ill myself. So I don't, I don't know if I've told you the full story about how I got ill and I just became a junior doctor. I don't think so. I'll, I'll regale the story. I'll try and keep it short because it's a bit of a long story. So I might mess things out. But basically, in 2009, when I qualified as a junior doctor, um, I was working at Bastard Hospital and three months into the job, and you know what it's like, Lauren, it's crazy hours, you suddenly start doing night shifts, You, the learning curve is just super steep. It's not just about the procedures, it's about how to manage your time, how to deal with your bleep constantly going off, so loads of stress. My diet was quote-unquote normal, so cereal, sandwiches at lunch, pasta, whatever you can find in the canteen, everything was sort of changing over that first three, four months. And then um, I remember vividly, I was working the late shift on a Sunday. I was at the nursing station. My heart just started pumping really, really rapidly. And, you know, for the first five minutes, I was just trying to brush it off, like, whatever, I probably haven't had that much water or, you know, it might just be a flutter or whatever. And then like five, 10, 15 minutes later, it was still going. And that's the point where I said to my reg, could you feel my pulse? I think I'm going quite fast. And within half an hour, bleep taken off me clothes off into a hospital gown, hooked up to a cardiac monitor. And I was in fast AF going at about 180 to 200 beats per minute. Luckily, I was stable. So I didn't need to have a cardioversion or anything like that, electrocardioversion or chemical. Um, and I was monitored overnight and I reverted spontaneously 24 hours later. But that was like the first episode of episodes that I would then go on to have two to three times a week for the next year. And no triggers no, it uh, wasn't alcohol, wasn't caffeine, wasn't anything specific in my blood work. I saw electrophysiology specialists. I saw a whole bunch of different professors of cardiology. I had the invasive studies looking at reentry pathways where they put a guide wire into your heart and then look at how the electricity basically permeates through your different areas of the heart to see if there were any uh, issues. There was nothing. And I was offered an ablation, which, you know, is guide one to the heart and you essentially burn an area where you get misfiring cells around the pulmonary vein. And that was sold to me as like a curative procedure. And I was like, definitely going to go for that because conventionally trained medic, just fresh out of medical school, seeing all my seniors, all telling me the same thing. All my colleagues are telling me the same thing, the same thing as well. Load yourself up with warfarin a couple of months and get this procedure done. My mum, who's not a medic, was the first person to say, you really need to look at your diet and your lifestyle before you allow someone to burn a hole in your heart. And, and that was the way she described it. And I thought she was crazy. And if I'm honest, I was changing my diet and lifestyle to appease her. 
and to show her, look, I'll do this for six months with the blessing of my cardiologist whilst taking my beta blocker and my antiarrhythmic, the flecainide that I took, pill in the pocket, so a stat dose whenever I needed it. And I'll show her, look, there's nothing I can do. So that was the start. And I started with nutrition. I started changing my breakfast. I had a lot more plant-based materials, those nuts and seeds. I did a bit of research around what kind of things I should be eating, change up my workouts. And so I was doing a little bit more yoga and flow rather than just endurance training, which I was doing quite a lot of stress levels. So I started meditating again, something that my mum taught me how to do when I was a teenager I try to improve my sleep when I wasn't on night shifts. And my episodes went from two to three times a week to zero over a year period. And I have a log of my AF episodes. I was really fastidious about it. I'd keep it on my phone. I'd know exactly when I was going and think of triggers prior to and what happened after and if I could do anything to sort of revert them. And really, the whole doctor's kitchen thing is me trying to retrospectively figure out how on earth this is possible because that's just not meant to happen. And there's so many different ways in which you can dissect it. Was it the stress levels? Was it excess inflammation from the nutrients that I wasn't feeding my microbiota? Was it the fact that I was doing more endurance training and I, and I moved that around? Was it my breath work? Was it my sleep hygiene? And reality And this is why I'm so passionate about the kind of stuff that you talk about and what I've grown to learn about holistic medicine. It's really putting your body in the best environment so it can thrive because we have these self-healing mechanisms. And I know that sounds a bit woo-woo, but honestly no, do. I'm all I'm all in for that you can go <laughs> go full woo-woo. <laughs> we really do have these mechanisms by which our body knows how to look after itself we just need to put it in the right state um, in a mode where it just knows how to look after itself and that's essentially like what I what I started researching when I, I dived into nutrition but that obviously you start with nutrition and it leads in, you into other things whether it be exercise medicine, sleep medicine, mind medicine, and beyond that as well. So, you know, as a conventionally trained doctor back in 2011 talking about food as medicine, it's kind of cavalier. And that's why it took me a good four years to get behind a camera and start talking about nutrition. And, and the objective wasn't to, you know, write books or do a TV show or do any of that kind of stuff. It was just to influence a handful of patients whereby I didn't have to spend a large proportion of my clinic time writing out recipes because I was running late all the time. Like, you know, do this, do this. This is good for your arthritis. This might be good for your type 2 diabetes. This could improve your metabolic control, yada, yada. Um, so it was like, do some videos, put it up there, tell them to go watch it, and that would be me done. And then it kind of escalated from there, really. So that was a long, that was a long no, story. No, no, no. It's really interesting. <laughs> it's, it's so, and you know, everything you're saying really resonates because I, when I was ill, obviously my entry point as well was nutrition, just focusing on what I could do to support my immune system and my gut health. And then, like you said, it, you kind of it opens you up. It's really a portal to just looking at medicine in a slightly different way and just the ways that, yeah, our bodies are equipped to self-heal and we just need to put them in the right state. And obviously, mm. if you get hit by a car, you need someone to put your leg together. You know, acute Absolutely. medicine, obviously, is so, so important. But there's just this bigger picture that we weren't, we weren't taught at medical school, were we? And yeah, to touch on the fact that you've actually now helped to get nutrition into, is it just Bristol University or is it? So we're actually out in UCL as well. Oh, so okay. um, 
Yeah, so culinary medicine is this concept that uh, isn't revolutionary. It's not something that we've invented. It's actually been around for well over 10 years. And there's clinical papers uh, going back as far as 2006, I believe, talking about the concept of culinary medicine, which in a nutshell is teaching medical students and all healthcare professionals the foundations of nutrition, but also how to cook as well. And the reason why you want both is because... It's kind of like, if I was to draw an analogy, it's kind of like doing anatomy without uh, dissecting a cadaver. You can't just learn anatomy from books. You have to really get those practical skills. And in the same way, nutrition, yeah, you could learn it by lecture-based learning or from books, but actually getting into a kitchen, feeling what it's like to slice an onion and the process of eating and having a family meal at the end of the session and talking through how actually can you translate what we're doing in front of a stove into a clinical scenario where you're actually trying to motivate a patient to look after their health and actually learn and and educate them about what the benefits of adding more fiber and phytonutrients and all the different sort of colors are in a meaningful way that's actually relevant and convenient to them, whether it be their cultural background, whether it be their own beliefs about food. So the gold standard is like this four-week intensive course that we do at Bristol as a specialty choice module. But we do uh, like an introductory course for every single medical student at UCL, and we're currently doing that right now. We've had to change it up quite a bit because of COVID. So we're doing the more remote learning now. And I'm, I'm going to be doing live demos next week from my kitchen studio here that's going to be beamed to like a whole bunch of uh, students simultaneously so they won't unfortunately be cooking along but um the ones that we've been doing at westminster kingsway have been pretty incredible and imperial now as well like you know they've got a whole lifestyle medicine course during years one and two which is incredible so it's definitely getting out there you know yeah, no, it's great. I mean, you've mentioned the fact that cooking is so important. You know, it's not just knowing about nutrition, but actually the act of cooking. Is that something you always loved or is that something that came when you started learning that how important nutrition was? Yeah, it goes back to my mum again. <laughs> Good old mum. So, <laughs> yeah, so she taught me how to cook before I went to medical school. I was 17 and I had no idea how to cook. And we'd always, I grew up in a family that was like obsessed with cooking and food. You know, we're always watching the Food Network on TV. Um, I've been a lifelong fan of Saturday Kitchen. In fact, it's like one of my ultimate dreams to be on the show at some point as a cooking guest. Yeah, she taught me how to make Thai green curry before I went to medical school. Everyone thought I was like this amazing chef in year one, but I really only had a repertoire of like three recipes. So to like maintain this pretense of me being a chef. I sort of had to learn more recipes and then I lived uh, with a whole bunch of guys who were really into the cooking and we'd do barbecue, we'd do like curries, we'd experiment with different spices. So I already had the foundations of how to make flavorful food and I was already obsessed with food and I just applied that to sort of healthier choices and healthier eating when I had my own medical issues. And I, was, I think I was living at home as well during my first year of working as a doctor because I was working in Essex and I was, my parents lived in Essex at the time. So my mum's kind of helped me switch up my, my diet. And then thereafter, I've had those sort of principles, which I talk about quite a bit. Yeah, because you've gone on to have, you've got two books now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got can, two books, yeah. So Weird. great, congratulations. And I've been watching your cook-alongs on Instagram, which are oh, great. Nice. So good for people who are stuck at home right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, this is going back to that sort of conversation we haven't start about the opportunity of learning something new and actually coming out of this 
as someone who's able to cook confidently, someone who's looked after their health, as someone who now appreciates self-care even more than ever. And I think hopefully we can encourage people to look after themselves. They, they're, they're not at greater risk of whatever comes out in the future. You know, that'll be for the benefit of the population and the healthcare service. I think as well, it's just so inspiring how... The way you speak about, you're obviously really passionate about nutrition, really passionate about cooking, also passionate about helping people to help themselves. And I just think it's so inspiring. And I know a lot of medical students or other doctors will just be in awe of the fact that you have managed to really curate your own career, which isn't always easy to do within medicine. You know, we're put on these kind of tracks, aren't we? And we're meant to come out the end as a cardiologist or whatever. But the fact is you've you've really managed to grow this incredible career and it's just by following your heart. And I love that because so often people are chasing success, but actually it just shows when you are true to yourself and follow your heart, follow your intuition, intuition you get there anyway. You know, you kind of doors start opening and there's not really a question in that. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I appreciate that, Lauren. You know, it's... It's interesting. You're right. Because when I was at medical school, I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. That's what I want to do. And you know, as medics, and I'm sure this is the same in lots of other careers, the steps and the the objectives you need to complete to get to your end destination. And then I quickly realized, I was looking around people when I was doing F1, F2, and then uh, GP training, like, there wasn't anyone that I really was like, I wish I had that life in like 10, 15 years time, I want to be just like my boss. And I respected them so much, but there were so many attributes of their lifestyle that I was like, I don't think this is me. And then by, like you said, being authentic to what my interests were and what I really believed in, I've sort of made stuff up as I go along, you know, starting the podcast, doing the YouTube's thing, you know, following things on social media and doing Coughlin's and all that kind of jazz and then coloring medicine as well. But Honestly, Lauren, it's like every day I have to make conscious decisions to be authentic to myself because it's very easy to get pulled into different directions. And especially at this position now where I'm just getting emails and opportunities and all that kind of stuff, you really have to have like a clear filter as to what your mission is. And I have to remind myself that honestly every single day because it's I could just do loads of things that randomly like mm, I I don't I shouldn't do that that's not really what's me and I've probably made mistakes in the past and I can't think of any at the moment but I've definitely made mistakes in the past where I haven't been authentic to myself so I'm conscious that people think that the last four or five years of the doctor's kitchen has kind of been like smooth sailing. It's been that hockey stick's been getting incredible. and But there are loads of losses on the way. And I think appreciating those losses, reflecting on them, are things that uh, have, have kept me sort of hopefully going in the right direction. But yeah, I, I appreciate that comment though. It's very nice. But I think you. as well, people don't appreciate how much hard work you've put in, probably from the outside, you know, maybe having a successful social media and a few books and but actually the amount of work and you can only carry on really doing it if it's driven by you know heart heart intention and from an authentic place because otherwise you'd burn out just like you would any other career if you oh, weren't 100%. doing it for the, the right reasons <laughs> totally, how, yeah. um, I'd love to, I'd love to know how do you find having the podcast because it has been really interesting this first season for me it's yeah. so much hard work I mean it's really enjoyable but it's a lot more work than I was expecting so much hard work like people will think we just flip the mics on and that's it but like the little things like scheduling right so like scheduling reaching out to people, finding a time, everyone's busy. 
that's like an issue. And then, you know, the audio stuff that you do afterwards, that's an issue. And then finding a schedule and then how do you fit that in, you know, uploading all that kind of stuff. I feel like I've got a bit of a process now, but I, I'd like, I want to episode 51 or something like that. And I found ways in which to make it a little bit more encompassing across social media. So we, we film everything we do. I'd love to have you on at some point when you, when you finally. <laughs> when I can finally back get back this. to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, where we, we bring you into the kitchen and then, you know, I cook for you. And so it's very homely, but um, it's, t- it's tough. You know, it's, it's, it's actually quite a lot of work. And what you see is this polished, product at the end is is a lot of blood sweat and tears so yeah no it's um it's been tough but yeah like you your pod's been incredible like i need to uh listen to the the jeff rediger episode um yeah he's brilliant he's he's amazing mm. so good like such a lovely person as well yeah definitely and just his approach like similar to yourself he he said it was really difficult at the beginning because a lot of colleagues there was a bit of a pushback from people saying really you think that you're gonna mm. find something in the spontaneous remissions and and of course he did and nutrition being a key part of it you know so many people who supposedly go into spontaneous remission actually have addressed their nutrition which is just so interesting yeah please go back and listen to it because he he is wonderful and his book cured is great as well this is what I want to talk to you about, actually, because my experience, I suppose it would be classed as a spontaneous remission. I've never been written up. My cardiologist never really, I still see my cardiologist. They haven't spoken about it with their colleagues. You know, you've done incredible work with your own like self-healing as well, which again, I'm, I don't know if, if your oncologist or anyone that's been looking after you has even written that up as a case study, like an interesting case study. And yet, and this is something that Jeff said, whenever he asks people about whether they're seen or been uh, involved in spontaneous remission cases, everyone puts their hands up. So there's this like cloud in the medical community that we should disregard these sort of anecdotes, even though, yes, it's the lowest form of evidence, but there's something in there. Mm, I know. Jeff actually said to me straight away, he was like, I wish I'd heard about you because I'd have written you up as well. And like you said, it's, it's not just cancer patients that he's spoken with. He's spoken with people across the board and these people who have incredible so-called spontaneous remissions, and I'm now going to call them so-called because mm. it seems that quite often there is a reason, and whether it's addressing food or you know past trauma or whatever it is, but people have done some kind of work that has, yeah, just been disregarded almost by our colleagues. And I appreciate that it, it's quite difficult to think, start thinking of these spontaneous remissions as something other than that, but yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think it's a really interesting field that will expand. I mean, Jeff's definitely on a mission. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I hope this is kind of instilled into medical students quite early on. And that's why I'm quite excited about, in particular, the lifestyle medicine course at Imperial, because it constitutes 20% of year one and year two, which is phenomenal. I mean, you think about like everything that we learned in those first two years, gastro, respiratory, pathology, etc. And they're getting 20% of that to lifestyle medicine. So hopefully the new generation will, will have more of a penchant for entertaining a lot more, yes, anecdotes, but putting that into a framework that is robust and actually um, maintains that scientific rigor that we practice medicine with. I'd love to see as well more trauma understanding coming into medical school because I had Gabo Mate on the podcast early on and he was saying, you know, he, he questioned me, did you ever get taught about psychological trauma? And I, I didn't, other than talking about PTSD, probably in mm. one psychiatry lecture, it really wasn't explored other than, you know, a car accident, that kind of physical trauma. 
And yet there's so much evidence now that psychological trauma affects us later in life, be it through our behaviours or, you know, our mental health, whatever it is, or actually our physical health, our physiology. And I think that's lifestyle medicine. I'm so pro-lifestyle medicine. It's so brilliant. It's coming through. And I think there's just a little bit more like a cherry on the top that needs to be there as well. And that's going to hopefully come. I mean, you know, it takes time, doesn't it? These small steps. Totally. Yeah. And I I think, you know, um, I I don't regard myself as a functional medicine doctor, um, but I'm definitely functionally medicine trained. And I think it gives an incredible insight into the wider picture of a patient. And the most effective thing that I use in clinical practice is something called a timeline. And the timeline essentially goes back from birth and you can ask this question, when was the last time you felt well, like really well on yourself? And sometimes people feel that they're, they're well right now or whatever, but actually if you dig a little bit deeper, it could be 10, 15, 20 years ago. And you follow that timeline along and you try and dig, what happened here, what happened here, what happened here? psychological trauma comes up a lot like it really does whether it's like neglect from parents whether it's a particular scenario maybe they were bullied at school you know I I had a patient who had an autoimmune condition diagnosed like five years prior she was young she was like 29 at the time and that was the last time she felt well but I was like dig a little bit deeper and actually she had PTSD from an incident she had with a former partner so you know, there is definitely something in there. And I don't think we as medics ask the right questions, perhaps probably because we're on a time restraint as well. I mean, the GP with eight, nine minutes is hardly going to go into this long, like, uh, history if, you know, we're taught that sort of react pattern recognition. Here is the diagnosis. Here is the treatment. Use that algorithm. So, yeah, I agree. I think the psychological element of medicine is really lacking. and, And hopefully we can get um, to a stage where new medics, or at least even qualified medics, are asking those right questions. I'd love to see as well more mental well-being support for healthcare workers. You know, we're seeing it now with the coronavirus epidemic. But I think, I mean, we all experience trauma, don't we? You know, in different ways, different forms. But for healthcare workers, even before coronavirus, it's it's a really traumatizing environment and quite often we're we're almost trained to just kind of put your head down get on with it it's part of the job we're not really cared for in that way our mental health is kind of pushed aside and I think what this is at least highlighting you know talking about silver linings from from going through this this epidemic this this issue that we're having right now but hopefully we're realizing that doctors and nurses and actually you know the day-to-day work is so traumatizing that they need support and I don't know whether you know I mean you're back on the front line now are you seeing are things coming through like initiatives to support you how is how is 100%. it absolutely yeah so I was literally having this conversation with my boss last week I mean she's amazing already because she did a conference the year before uh, with Arkem uh, so she's an a uh, consultant uh, and she did the first conference called Flourishing in Adversity. And it was basically geared towards all EM doctors at any stage of training, loads of consultants there. And honestly, Laura, you would have loved it. Mindfulness, it was nutrition. I was asked there to talk about how to look after yourself and create meals for yourself when you're on shift and nights and whether we should be eating at nights uh, during night shifts. Sleep medicine, everything basically that you'd want as a package to maintain the psychological well-being and the physical well-being of, of doctors who are on the front lines. And this has really like brought that to the forefront. And even now, like I'm seeing loads of initiatives for people doing Zoom meetings, doing free counseling, psychological therapy. Um, and 
we've traditionally been quite slow to do this in the NHS, but one of my good friends, and I can't remember if you know or not, his name's, well, his nickname's Fridge. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's an, an ED doctor in Sydney. And he looks after the hospitals at night. You know, he's a senior reg now. They had this really bad night once, uh, a couple of months back, where they had loads of trauma come in, young patients, some really unfortunate incidents. And at seven in the morning, the a consultant was on the phone speaking to all the juniors to make sure that they were psychologically well. And then they had three psychotherapists come in and whiz around the department at the end of shift to make sure that everyone had a proper debriefing and everyone knew where to, to look for when they had um, any issues, if they had any issues going forward. That's how we need to be treating more of our frontline doctors because the stats for PTSD and clinical signs of PTSD across the board are incredible. There was a, a paper that came out of the ARC of um, Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they surveyed all their trainees, and they found that 30% had clinical symptoms of PTSD. And there is no sort of place for where people can go to actually have those sort of support systems. So I think this incident for sure will trigger more of those initiatives and i'm i'm not grateful for for this having to happen but it's almost like it needed to happen for people to take this kind of stuff seriously Mm, definitely yeah and it's great to hear that conference sounds amazing i'll definitely check that out if it's happening again just talking of silver linings and i want to really recognize and highlight that you know we're very aware how difficult the situation is for so many people and yeah, we just want to look for the positives. It's it's helpful to look forward and be hopeful as well. So in your eyes, what are you hoping for the future beyond this? In terms of your own life and then maybe beyond, you know, maybe the NHS or whatever, just a bigger world. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's reinlighted my passion for acute medicine, if I'm honest. I know this is kind of uh, what I want to do more of. So that's me on a personal level. I think self-care for both patients and doctors alike is going to be a huge thing going forward. I think the initiatives and the acts of kindness hopefully will stick and we will always remember this time. I think it's going to be like a a generation-defining moment as well. Like I don't know if you've heard what the new kids are called. um, I don't know whether it's going to stick or not, but they're called the C generation. And hopefully the C generation of which my godsons are part of... um, I thought you were talking about children that were born during the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah I am. Yeah, yeah literally. Yeah. I saw in India this week, two twins were born and they yeah. called them Corona and COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, what is going oh on there? It's like constant so reminder. It's, it's literally no, the C generation, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, literally the C generation. I mean, there's definitely going to be a, surely there's going to be a baby boom as well from this. Oh, yeah. People cooped up in the houses and doing video Skype dates and that kind of jazz. But um, the C generation are like kids that are born during this time. So one of my best friends, his kid was just born six weeks ago. And we're just talking about like what that's going to be like for the kid. You know, are they going to be taught to be a lot more kind and compassion? I mean, they already are, but like this is going to put it on another level where they're going to see it on a daily basis rather than just being told to share and act kindly in uh, in their teaching environments. You know, what is this going to do for humanity and our environment? Are we going to take pollution a lot more seriously? Are we going to take consumption and mindful consumption a lot more seriously? I really hope so. It, it makes me slightly uncomfortable talking about this because I think it makes it seem like it's very easy for everyone to conjure these sorts of thoughts 
Whereas in reality, there are going to be a lot of people who are undergoing hardship and it's going to be very hard to appreciate. But at the same time, I really am hopeful for the, for the new generation of kids um, who've lived through this. It's almost similar to the world wars, although I would argue this is perhaps even more universally defining because every single country is involved. You don't have any neutral states in this. So I'm really hopeful and optimistic about that. But I'm really hoping that self-care is a huge thing that comes out of this. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I worry I'm slightly too optimistic about it. <laughs> Um, I think it's because whenever I've gone through a huge challenge, um, obviously stage four cancer and then the car accident, I really have experienced what I would call post-traumatic growth. Probably coming back to what you said about being authentic, I think I've become more authentic and I've reconnected with myself more and just stripped back layers. Every time I go through a challenge, I think that's what it is. It's a stripping back of layers. And I actually feel right now very blessed and grateful that personally I'm, I don't feel like I'm going through a trauma or a, cha- a huge challenge myself. And yet it's still an opportunity to slow down and, you know, like you said, more self-care, more gratitude for everyone around me and just for life as always, you know. I think that's another thing that happens every time I've gone through one of these big life challenges. I just think, God, I'm so lucky to be alive, like, to live another day. You know, I'm on borrowed time, essentially. I mean, my prognosis was less than a year and here I am. Mm. So I hope that everyone just appreciates the fact that they can go outside and hear the birds sing and feel the sunshine on their face and hug friends, you know, all of this. The problem is, is that it does fade, doesn't it? You have to work at it. And I think that's where your gratitude practices come in. You have to really try and keep it at the forefront of your mind because we all slip back into old habits and old ways of being. But my hope is that actually this amount of time is long enough. I appreciate not everyone's at home so they can't, you know, start new practices. But, you know, for the people that are, maybe they have started a meditation practice and a journaling practice and they've got into online yoga or something. And that because they will have practiced it so much, you know, this isn't just a week at home. This is it's going to be 60 days, 90 days, who knows? That's long enough, isn't it, to form a habit, so they say. I think you're right about, you know, the habit-forming aspect of this being given 30, 60, 90 days, depending on, like, what your predisposition is you will be able to form habits. So if you can consciously make the effort to journal or gratitude or practice gratitude or just choosing one of those and just sticking with that, I think that's the first thing that people should be mindful of. The other thing is we all inherently have a negativity bias, which is why we are attracted to bad news on, on the internet. And that's what sells papers and it's what gets people to click. Appreciating that we have this negativity bias for an evolutionary reason is very important. The reason why we have negativity bias is because it's protected us from poisonous plants or um, predators in the wild or you know anything that can be of uh, physical or mental harm to us. So we've developed this negativity bias that is now being sort of hijacked by papers, media, social media, etc. For a real reason, if we can get over that and actually understand, okay, this is how I'm feeling, this is why... I'm anxious about this or this is why I have this inherent desire to just keep on flicking through Twitter and just finding out what on earth is going on and the numbers, etc. Then you can kind of let it sit with you. And if you're able to get over that, then you can sort of grow into your other practices that actually serve you in a positive manner. So 
hopefully people understand this as like, yes, a, a massive challenge, but it's something that we can grow from. Uh, there's so many parallels, um, you know, with your story. I, I even see parallels in like nature as well, like this process of plant hormesis that I'm absolutely fascinated with, which is where you ingest phytochemicals that are actually natural insecticides from your plant. And that actually elicits a mild inflammatory response in your body, which leads to an overall anti-inflammatory response and, and balances um, inflammation signals. You know, there's so many different things. It's like when you exercise, you're actually shearing your muscles, you're causing damage, but that's so you can grow afterwards and actually become more resilient to uh, you know, um, whether it be inflammation or whether it be environmental pollutants or whether it improves the function of your heart. You know, there's so many like parallels to, to what we're going through. And this is particularly disastrous, but what doesn't completely kill us will actually make us stronger going forward. And that is a cliche, but, you know, it's, it's very true. Mm, definitely. And that's not to say, of course, yeah, that it will be very challenging for some people. And I appreciate if you've already got anxiety or you've got a trauma history, this will be really, really triggering. But as mm. long as you know that you can reach out and it's so great that there's so many healthcare professionals going online, whether it's psychologists or therapists. Um, so you can get that support in that way. And then yeah, all these practices, self-care, meditation. And what's so great is you can just give yourself 10 minutes. So if you've got children or if you're working from home, you, you can always find that 10 minutes really and just slot it into your day and hopefully it'll form a habit so how are you looking after yourself generally i'm doing the basics of what i tend to do so exercising in the morning trying to get breath work in as well i've been doing this thing actually with a good friend of mine who's um, a neurogastroenterologist and she works at the wingate and she looks specifically at breathing you should speak to her actually lauren she's fascinating she looks at um, breathing as a as a way of um, treating and managing ibs symptoms and there's a lot of evidence about how you know if you increase vagal tone you can uh, decrease the sympathetic signals that can actually lead to better sort of tol tolerability of um, your digestive spasms which is quite common in ibs patients so every sunday i'm doing a breathwork practice with her we actually put it on Instagram live so people can join along. But it's actually, it's kind of selfish. It's kind of like for me <laughs> because it kind of it makes me a lot more conscious about breathing, but it also forces me to continue my breathwork practice during the week because I know that Dr. Rabi is going to be asking me about it on Sunday. So yeah, just really getting to that. And um, Just while we're on the topic of breathwork, I saw a brilliant ICU consultant yesterday doing a video and he was saying actually for anyone who gets symptoms of COVID-19 he really recommends breath work because obviously you want to open up all the alveoli and especially he said after you've done you know say six rounds of breath work you should then actually lie on your front on your bed because it opens up the lungs more and you can just carry on to kind of deep breathing so I thought that was really interesting as well because obviously it makes sense you know it's a it's affecting the lungs but if you can just breathe so not only does breath work help you know through parasympathetic kind of system and the vagus mm. nerve but actually right now it's a really good thing for everyone to be doing as well you, you know that's a really good point you must send that to me lauren because i'll definitely reshare that um because you know you see patients that we see in a and &E, um we do an x-ray they have changes suggested of covid but they're not sick enough to come to the hospital so and at the moment all we're doing is giving them antibiotics and i give them a bit of nutritional advice to mitigate any risks of taking antibiotics at the moment but we don't really talk about breath work or anything like that so that's super interesting and if you think about it from a physiological level what we do in itu is prone patients and that's essentially 
all we're doing, obviously, with mechanical ventilation and other ways of ventilating. So if you're proning yourself at home, you're actually putting the fluid that will accumulate, unfortunately, into your lungs onto the front bit, and then you open up the back spaces as well. So there are things like this that we could actually be doing right now. Mm. So I, I, you must send that to me because I, I would love to share that. It's brilliant. No, I, I will do, definitely. Isn't it just amazing that all these holistic practices in the midst of this pandemic, we all need all of them. I'd be interested, actually, where do you stand on... I know I'm not going to use the word boosting immune system because that's something that <laughs> drives me mad, but where yeah. do you stand in supporting your immune system, especially through, through food? Is that something that you advocate for? Massively. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, yeah, the, the ter- so the vernacular around um, nutrition is something quite interesting. So, yeah, boosting your immune system, I think, for a lot of people, that's that. if they want to use that word, that's fine. It's kind of like how clean eating has kind of fallen out of fashion because of orthorexia, and that's a genuine concern for sure. But I had a patient before this happened, like maybe three, four months ago, he came in and was like, yeah, yeah, doctor, you know, I just need to clean up my diet. I just need to clean everything up and get rid of the junk food or whatever. 50-year-old guy, I'm not going to turn around to him and say, you know what, you shouldn't be using the word clean because <laughs> technically we're not cleaning and nothing's dirty. You know, you do, it really depends on the patient. So if people understand boosting your immune system in a way that actually empowers them to, you know, eat more vegetables and hydrate and improve sleep and perhaps take a vitamin d supplement then that's fine that's up to you the way i eat to i like people to think about their immune system is supporting a peacekeeper role so your immune system isn't just something that fights off pathogens or you know allows your cuts to heal and send inflammatory signals to platelets and then causes this cascade it's something that maintains balance or homeostasis as we say the equilibrium of of everything you know it goes around your body and looks for mutated cells and clears them away and makes sure that foreign materials aren't going in between your gut lining and then going to your bloodstream which again elicits uh, signals that cause inflammation so the way I think about supporting your immune system is through a number of different ways. And I wrote a whole chapter about this in my, in my last book, Eat to Bit Illness. Looking after your gut, and you know more about this than me probably, but not just with probiotics and supplements, but also just the simple action of eating more variety of foods. And this, again, to look at the positive, is going to encourage a lot more people to think outside the box. You can't always get your broccoli or the standard vegetables you have because they might not be available in the, in the shelves. So you're probably going to be reaching for things like tinned tomatoes or different types of beans or a whole bunch of other ingredients that you may not have had contact with. And we know that diversity across the week has is, is, uh, been shown to improve the function uh, and the, the diversity of your microbiota as well. And your microbiota is not only bacteria, but also viruses, fungi, nematodes, a whole bunch of different plethora of different microbes. Having more vegetables in your diet will flood your body with different phytochemicals that again support your immune system. Hydrating is super, super important, again, from the process of digesting food, but also making sure that your cells are working effectively. And also sleep is probably the most immune supporting activity that we can do and i get it people are struggling to sleep right now i'm struggling to sleep myself there's loads of things going around my mind but if you can get that dose of beautiful eight to nine hours sleep a day you're doing the wonderful things for your immune system and you probably don't need it in, in australia but certainly here we're putting the vitamin d supplementation particularly if we're cooped up in our in our houses 
There is a paper I'm yet to read specifically on coronavirus and maintaining a replete vitamin D status. I think vitamin D has got so many benefits overall. It, it, it warrants taking a supplement, particularly if you're of African or Indian origin, you have more melanin in your skin. Also, we're less efficient at absorbing it from the sun. And there is evidence for this as well. And, you know, we don't have the evidence to say all these actions are going to be reducing the chances of you having negative impacts if you do contract COVID. But certainly the plethora of benefits beyond just viral pathogens and fighting off infections well deserve people being able to talk about this. And that's why I'm so passionate about um, this subject matter. Yeah, and it's not just, like you said, it's not just for the now. It's just for your health moving forward and... I think that's why lifestyle medicine and nutrition, it's just so, so great that it's something that you can be doing to not only hopefully, maybe if you've got a chronic disease like diabetes or high blood pressure, hopefully start to address that in a more holistic way, but actually just prevent hopefully you developing illnesses, be it cancer or whatever it is in the future. So yeah, no wonder you're so passionate about it. And yeah, just thank you so much for for the work you've done and really being a trailblazer i know that so many medics are really inspired by you so yeah thank you so oh, much i appreciate that lauren i'm inspired by you as well you keep on doing what you're doing it's amazing to see how much you've grown over the last few years and um i think i we met up in sydney when you were visiting a mutual friend rachel yeah and that's right since then mate you've just done so many things and i've got to listen to the backlog of podcasts that you've done as well because um you've had some incredible guests so keep on doing what you're doing mate thank you so much rufi well i'm actually going to throw one final question in because it's you bonus <laughs> i think it has to be food related so if you were stuck on a desert island and you were told you could only eat one meal forever what would that meal be one meal forever um it would probably be uh, my mum's almond curry. It's incredible. So good. It's, I'll give you the scoop. Ground almonds that you cook in either coconut oil or, or ghee as your base. And then you add the different spices, uh, mustard seed, fennel, coriander seed, cumin. And you toast that together. And then you add fresh tomatoes, a little bit of veg stock, and throw in whatever veggies you want. Or you can even add chicken if you like. And honestly, that's like, it's kind of like a korma, but like nicer. It's, it's amazing. So I good. can see how much you love it by the look on your face. <laughs> that's so great. It's Thank good. you. And just for anyone who wants to connect with you, where can people find you? Oh, yeah, sure. It's uh, thedoctorskitchen.com. Uh, the newsletter is probably the best way to connect these days across social media because we put out two science-based recipes every single week plus a whole bunch of lifestyle tips to help you live healthier, happier lives. And yeah, across that, it's YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the podcast. And there's a series on BBC iPlayer, if you guys can access that, with 18 recipes of me like showing you how to cook from scratch. So Amazing. So good. Thank you so much, Rufi. It's been lovely to chat with you. And you, Lauren. Stay in touch, mate. I'll catch you soon. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for listening to the podcast. That is actually the end of the first season of the Holistic Healing Project, but the next season will be coming very soon. So if you would like to stay in touch, just head on over to my website, which is drlaurenmcdonald.com and sign up for the newsletter and you will be the first to know when the next episode comes out. In the meantime, please stay safe, look after yourself, stay connected, stay healing, and I will be with you again very soon. 
Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.